I told you that from Romans 6, 1 to 11, there are four great statements of fact, four truths, four promises, promises of grace. I was interested to read this week from a book entitled just that, The Promises of Grace, by Brian Chappell, who is president of Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, where he talks about the very promises that I want to talk about this morning. And he opens his book this way, Come see live pheasant. Come pet baby pigs. Come see live buffalo. The series of billboards beckoned us to veer off the highway to get our gas and a meal at Cowboy Bob's Circus of Fun. I don't think that's Bob Lapine, but it could be. (laughs) Somehow, Cowboy Bob seemed to know that it would take more than cheap gasoline prices and a hamburger to get vacationers off the interstate. So, as we neared his exit, each billboard made bigger and more exotic promises. Not only could we pet baby pigs, but soon we learned we could feed live rattlesnakes. We hoped not with the baby pigs. But the best attractions were yet to come. Come see the five-legged cow, the next billboard advertised. And if that were not tantalizing enough, then the six-legged steer touted on the next sign was sure to allure. Yet to come, however, was the promise of all promises, the biggest and best saved for last. Lest we even think about driving by Cowboy Bob's without a visit, the final billboard promised we could see the world's largest armadillo. Who could resist a promise like that? Promises, Brian Chappell says, have power. It is the reason we want to use them. Promises have the power to persuade, to assure, and to attract. Promises have so much power that we are tempted to use bigger and better promises to manipulate others. As a result, promises tend to get out of hand. A rundown store in central Kansas attracts customers with billboard promises of, quote, new and old antiques, unquote. A questionable promise, to say the least, but no more questionable than the promises Christians sometimes make to attract others to God. Christians so much want others to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are tempted to sell Jesus on the billboard of the big promise, accept Jesus as your Savior and God will grant your business success. Trust in Jesus and you will never get sick again. Turn your life over to Jesus and all your problems will disappear. The promises are not always so bold, not always so self-serving, but all of us recognize their allure. But then he says, but what does God promise? If the godly are supposed to be wealthy, then why was Jesus poor? If holiness assures health, then why did all of the apostles die? If being in God's family wipes away all problems, then why did Mary and Martha argue? God does not promise every believer more money and fewer headaches. 
God promises confidence of our relationship with Him. If God wanted to promise us easy street, He would not have commanded us to take up our crosses daily. Oh, sure, God may grant material blessings, long lives, and united families. Sometimes we pray for such blessings, and God answers in the way He knows is best. But the real benefits of grace are not a new Lexus, skin that does not wrinkle, and a family that never gets out of sorts. If these were the benefits all Christians were to expect, most of us would consider ourselves shortchanged. The benefits God promises to all believers are not that worldly and not that fragile. Christians whose joy is full have discovered happiness in what this world cannot offer and cannot deny. The promises of grace are not recorded in a bank book. They do not rely on a doctor's diagnosis, and difficulty cannot erase them. By focusing on the the genuine benefits of grace, Christians can rediscover the promises God designed to make their lives more satisfying and less selfish, more fulfilling and less driven, more peaceful and less guilt-ridden. It is true, when we focus on the real promises of grace, and we find them listed for us in Romans 6, 1 to 11. You follow along as I read. What shall we say then? Are we to, in, to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The first of those four truths, those four facts, those four promises that we discussed last time is listed for us in Romans 6.2, after Paul has asked that penetrating initial question in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You remember I said to you that principially that's a very profound promise. And the principle is this, 
those dead to sin's power are now not to be characterized, cannot be characterized by its lifestyle. I said to you last time that if you are really a Christian, if you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, then the fact, the promise, the reality, it is indicative of your life that you cannot now be characterized by its lifestyle because you've been delivered from it. You have seen the broken pattern of sin in your life. It's not characterizing you. It's not under the control as it once was. You are not powerless to defeat it. And that is exactly what he means by that phrase, that question, that rhetorical statement. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The answer is you can't. You can't still live in sin if you've died to it. It's not possible. Oh, yes, Christians will sin, and when they sin, they will grieve over their sin, as opposed to non-Christians who don't grieve over their sin. They love their sin. They want their sin. Oh, they may have some kind of initial pangs of guilt that they were caught or guilt that it caused terrible circumstances, but in the end, the power of sin has not been broken in their life. They don't say no to sin. They don't grieve over sin. Paul says, by no means could anyone who has died to sin still live in it. And you know what he's doing? He's answering the question that was given by some apparently back in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. It might have even been specifically the Jews who would have gone to Paul and said, look, you tell us that Jesus Christ is the only righteous one. You tell us that He's the only answer, but we're telling you we are obedient to the Mosaic Law. And when we do, that's God's hope for us. That's God's answer for us. We're going to be saved by obedience to the law. That's what it's going to mean to be a covenant maker, a covenant follower. Paul says you better not be trusting in that. You better not think that you can go to heaven based on your keeping of anything, the law of Moses included. And you notice in verse 20 it says, The law came in to increase the trespass. It wasn't to give you salvation. It wasn't to give you some covenant pass. The law came in to increase the trespass. Adam's trespass. God gave a law through Moses, and when He did, it didn't show the Jews how good they could be. It didn't give them entrance into the kingdom. It showed them the greater level of their sin. But He says, grace, even where sin increased, abounded all the more. What kind of grace? Here it is, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, yes, that's true, it reigned even from Adam till Moses until there was a law, and even after Moses when there was that law given. Yes, sin did reign in death. It caused death. That was its consequence. Yet, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how grace reigns, through Jesus Christ. No amount of law-keeping, no amount of prayer-praying, no amount of money-giving, no amount of ministry-undertaking is going to ever merit anyone inclusion into the kingdom of God. It comes by grace. 
And it's the grace we don't deserve. It's the grace we haven't earned. And it's the grace we desperately need. And should there be a Jew in Paul's day, or anyone else for that matter, anyone else trusting in anything else than Jesus Christ, he says to them, what shall we say? What shall we say to a possible objection or even a real one? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It cannot be. And then he goes, to, goes on to give us these four truths, these four promises of grace. And these aren't anything like Cowboy Bob's place. These are real promises. These are true. These are not made up. These are not embellished. If you're truly dead to sin, you can take great joy in knowing that you don't have to live in it. In fact, you cannot. You will not. And I said to you last time, if you're battling with sin, if you've seen sin's power and it is unbroken in your life, you can't get over it, you can't get around it, you can't deal with it, then you're still living in it. You're still living in it. You're powerless to do anything about it. That's why you need grace. That's why you need Jesus Christ. There's a second powerful, penetrating, wonderful promise of grace listed here. And it's in verses 3 and 5. And that's the second one that I want to talk to you about this morning. And I'll principalize it like this. Those dead to sin's power are now in vital union with Jesus Christ by His death, burial, and resurrection. Not only are those who are dead to sin's power not able to be characterized by its lifestyle, but secondly, those dead to sin's power are now in a vital union, an identification, a participation with Jesus Christ by virtue of His death and His burial and His resurrection. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5 of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Oh, beloved people, what a great promise. What a great fact. And it is indicative in your life. You remember I said to you last time, there are indicatives in the New Testament and imperatives. Indicatives are the statements of fact, the truths that which is true of you, that which you can know as a promise, as a certainty, as a fulfillment, because God has willed it so, and it is true of every genuine believer in the Christian life. It is absolutely going to happen. That's indicative. The imperatives, commands. Living out what you know, living out who you are, doing what you know to be true, living out the reality of your condition. And you know what? In verses 1 to 10, there are no imperatives. 
None. That's why we're calling these four facts, four statements of fact, four promises. And he gives us the second one here in verses 3 to 5. He moves to a second indicative statement of fact. And he points to certain facts, or as we've heard from Brian Chappell's illustration, certain promises which are communicated to and about Christians regarding God's grace. It may abound, he says in verse 1. Not to sin, but to know who you are. And under our outline point number two, Paul promises that a person simply cannot continue under the dominion, the domination of sin's control because he has seen its power broken through our vital union with Jesus Christ. And what a most vital union this is for the true Christian. This is a key Understanding. It's the understanding of all understandings regarding the true believer. I'll state it like this so as to underscore the point. The only way it will ever be said of me or you that I am right with God, the sole criteria for it to be factually stated that I've had sin's power broken in my life, the utter ground for which it could be spoken of me that I am headed for heaven instead of hell, is that I have an indivisible union, a vital union with the Savior of men through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's it in a nutshell. That's, that's the great promise. It's the promise of all promises. That I have a vital union with Christ. The only way I'm going to go to heaven is if Christ... And I are in union, in league, in participation, in identification. But now, having said that, what's his specific point here in verses 3 to 5? As he somehow ties our union with Christ, he says, by baptism. Didn't you read it with me? It's talking about baptism here. What kind of baptism? Is it referring to Christ's baptism here by John the Baptist? Is he referring to the water baptism of believers? Or is he referring to spirit baptism being explained in what Christ does through the Holy Spirit when He places every true believer within the body of Christ at their conversion into that very body? What does Paul really mean when he uses the concept of baptism here? Uh, We have to unpack it. We have to unfold it because he says that we were baptized into the death of Christ. What does that mean? Well, I believe that the answer lies primarily on the side of Paul picturing our vital union with Christ in two senses, with one of them primary, and that is spiritual. I believe he's primarily talking here about our spiritual baptism. That is, God, through the work of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, taking us and placing us into the body of Christ, spiritually speaking. I think that's what he's referring to there primarily, but right on the heels of that, and cannot be divorced from it, is our physical, literal water baptism. So you say, which view do you take? Both. My feet are firmly planted in midair. I believe it's referring to both here. I don't think you can really see this passage as teaching one against the other. You can't. And I fully realize that even though there is 
sometimes vigorous debate about the meaning of baptism here in Romans 6, I don't want us to lose Paul's main point. Even if we never figured out what kind of baptism is being referred to here, the main point is this, our vital union with Christ, our participation with Christ. That's what it's mainly pointing to. It's the believer's participation or union with Christ. And I want you to go in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, where Paul gives a virtual parallel that might be able to help us understand what he might mean in Romans 6. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. It has virtually the same grammatical construction here. He says to the Galatians in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, Romans 6, you were baptized into Christ Jesus, same idea, same reference I believe, for as many as you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's talking spiritually here. There's no mention of water baptism here. Same grammatical construction. Probably the same idea there in Romans 6. It's a spiritual baptism. It's when the Holy Spirit, based on the work of Christ, empowers each and every genuine believer to be placed in a corporate group called the body of Christ. You want to see where spirit baptism is in fact used? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you'll see this idea of spirit baptism. You want to see where believers are said to be baptized into the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that. Verse 13, For in one Spirit, I believe that being a reference to the Holy Spirit, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Romans 6, baptized into Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.27, baptized into Christ, therefore putting on Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.13, in or by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. This is the supernatural Acts 2 Pentecost Reality that we have been formed into the very body of Christ. And what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 12, of course, and even throughout verse uh, chapters 13 and 14, is to talk to us about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. But he announces that spiritual giftedness within the body by saying, we're all baptized into one body, whether we're Jews or Greeks or slaves or free. He could have given any designation he wanted to, any distinction and said, if you're a believer in Christ, you've been baptized into one body. It's speaking about our union with Christ in the body. And I believe that that's Paul's imagery here, his primary point of emphasis. But now, by the same token, you can't divorce that from water baptism. You can't. Because at the same time, at one and the same time, what he desires to emphasize, the main point being whether or not true believers can continue in sin, is to offer a very powerful and effective tool, a teaching about our having been immersed into the body of Christ spiritually, and then where is that most pictured? Water baptism. That's where it's gloriously pictured. It pictures our union with Christ 
by what water itself, water immersion, symbolizes. And maybe one thing that's going to help us all out is that when this word baptism is used, or baptize, baptizo, bapto, that's in our English Bibles simply transliterated into the word baptism, the English word baptism. Well, that's not very helpful. We should rather, in my judgment, translate this word or this concept of words as immersion. Immersion. A dipping into. A full partaking in. And that's exactly what happens in water baptism. It happens spiritually first within our hearts. When we confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, God takes us and through the Holy Spirit's power and because of the work of Christ on the cross... He dips us into, He immerses us into the body of Christ, spiritually speaking. And then, when we submit ourselves to the waters of baptism as a baptismal candidate, we are showing a watching world, a declaratory act, that we are indeed participants in the body of Christ. We are aligned with, we are enmeshed with, we are immersed into the body of Christ. Maybe that's better for us to think of than just simply saying baptism. And plus baptism itself, that very concept, even water baptism, carries, that, carries so much baggage in our day and in so many days before. We could say it like this. Paul's use of the word baptism is immersion and we need both. We need spiritual immersion and we need water baptism. We need it. Yes, it's a command. It's a command of obedience. Why? Because it shows the outward sign, the outward reality of what's happening on the inside. God has designed the body of Christ in such a way that each time one of these Roman believers, and that's who Paul is talking about here, that's who he's talking to, each time one of these Roman believers were baptized, literally baptized in water, it was to powerfully picture again and again and again and again as you saw those baptismal candidate, candidates go down to that river or that stream and they were immersed into water it again and again and again showed the powerful picture of what was happening spiritually on the inside in that particular local situation it was wonderful it's marvelous when we see baptism here we affirm the idea that this person is participating with us as a fellow member of the body of Christ. You can't divorce that from, I believe, what's going on here in Romans 6. When a person is baptized, literally immersed into water, because that's what the word actually means, the reality behind that biblical ordinance is that we've been spiritually placed, dipped into the very death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Himself. What a wonderful text Romans 6 is for Palm Sunday and next Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday. Because it's talking about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and what happened to us when He died there at Calvary and when He was buried in that tomb and when He was raised from the dead. What a marvelous picture that stands behind these words. Notice, verse 3, Do you not know? Apparently, this was something for which the Roman believers should have known and known well. Do you not know that all of us, notice that, all of us, every genuine believer, every true convert who have been baptized into Christ were baptized 
into his death. When did that happen? Well, depending on your chronology, whether it was 30 or 33 A.D., it's when Christ died. That's when. It's not talking about your individual conversion or mine or even the Roman believers. It's talking about a corporate reality that God does when Christ died on the cross and thereby secured the salvation of everyone who would ever believe. And at that moment when that resurrection occurred, the confirmation, the affirmation that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, He conquers death, He conquers hell, He conquers the grave... And he also begins this marvelous thing we call the church, the body of Christ. And it happened, of course, in reality, in time, in Acts 2 at Pentecost. And that body was birthed. And every time there is a new convert, even today, they link their inclusion, their participation, their identification, their union with Christ in what he did on Calvary. What a tremendous thought. When you were baptized, Paul says, spiritually speaking, into Christ Jesus, you were baptized, you were immersed, you were dipped into His death, and you were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism, spiritually and literally, into death. What's the literal water baptism? It's what it pictures. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, will walk, in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like Him. Oh, this is, this is a promise, beloved. It's a statement of fact. It's indicative of who you are if you're in Christ. If you're a person who loves Jesus Christ, you've seen the power of sin's dominion broken in your life, you can't continue to live in that. How can anyone say they're a Christian and continue to live an unbroken pattern of sin in their life? They can't. You can't be characterized that way anymore. That's not your present lifestyle. Why? Because it's a fact about you that you've seen power's dominion broken. It's dead to you. Dead to your control. Dead to your power. You have another power. And it is a fact, it is an, an unarguable fact that Jesus Christ, by His own death, when He died that death on Calvary, when He was raised from the dead, God took everyone who would ever believe at that very moment and dipped you into the body of Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, it happened in space and time. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, the moment you repent, no matter what year it is, no matter what month it is, no matter what time it is, at the very moment that you confess Jesus Christ and you ask God for forgiveness, you turn from your sin, you place your faith in Christ, in reality, in space and time, you give evidence that you too are a part of the body of Christ. What a tremendous truth. Is that your truth? Is that the truth about you? You say, I know a lot of facts about Christ. I believe that He died. I believe that He was buried in that tomb. I believe that He was resurrected from the dead. It was not just the fact of historical consequence. It's the promise that you were baptized into Christ Jesus. That's the truth. That's the eternal truth of relevance to you. If you haven't been baptized into Christ Jesus, 
then you can lay no claim to the break with sin's power. Those dead to sin's power are now in vital union with Jesus Christ through His death and His burial and His resurrection. If you haven't been baptized into Christ Jesus, into His death, that burial that gives us that sense that the old life is down there and the new life has sprung up, the very affirmation that you too one day will be resurrected like Jesus Christ Himself was resurrected, if you do not affirm that with all of your heart and believe that God has raised Him from the dead, you're not a part of the body of Christ. It's not a promise for you. You can't claim that. This is indicative here. It's not imperative. It's asking you a question. Is this a statement of fact about you? No, it's... It's actually making a statement of fact about all true believers. And you have to ask the question, are you one of those? Are you one of those? No imperative here. No command to be obeyed. But you and I have to ask ourselves the question, is that true of me? Am I a part of the body of Christ? Did Christ die for me? You say, I don't know. I don't know if Christ died for me. Well, ask yourself this question. Do I love my sin or do I hate my sin? Do I want Christ to be my Lord or do I want to be my Lord? I saw a license plate two days ago. I was driving down the road, minding my own business, obeying the speed limit. And I had a car pass me. And I believe the license plate said something like like this. Loving being me loving being me and then I went to the Arkansas Rim Rockers basketball game the other night yes I do have some life out there I took my boys we went to the Arkansas Rim Rockers game and I was looking at the program and inside the program one of the cheerleaders had asked a series of questions about what's your favorite color and what's your lucky number and all of those profound questions of life And one of the questions was, who would you most like to be? And I pointed out to my to my boys. I said, look at this. Look at the statement. Who would you most like to be? And one of those cheerleaders answers was myself. Myself. I said to my boys, my response is I would most like to be not myself because I know myself and I don't like myself. I don't like what I do when I sin. I don't like what I do when I disobey. If that's your heart, you can know that Christ is working in you. You can know that Christ is working in you. But if you love yourself, then you'll love being yourself. Uh, You'll love being me. How would anyone declare anything if they were a true Christian? This This is the picturing of a person who's been baptized into Christ who wants to be like Christ, you see? You want to be like Christ. Ask yourself the question, each and every day am I progressing more into the very image of Jesus Christ? That's God's plan. Romans 8, 28 and 29, that's God's plan. To conform you more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. You don't want to be yourself. You want to be like Christ. You want Christ to conform you to His image. You say, well, I'm I'm still not sure. And I'm not sure about this baptism idea. Are you sure 
Are you sure, especially about water baptism here? Are you sure that this is what that's referring to? And if it is, I've got a question for you. Someone might immediately object and say, wouldn't a person's being spiritually placed in the body of Christ be the real defining issue here? I mean, even if they were never water baptized? And if so, shouldn't we just simply dispense with the literal and the physical and the outward stuff like water baptism? Isn't that just a show anyway? Does it really matter that I've been water baptized? I mean, if Paul's really picturing the essence of baptism here and he includes water baptism, even if he does say primarily it's spirit baptism, what about those who've been baptized years and years and years later after their conversion to Christ? Doesn't that appear to make water baptism unnecessary? Well, these are really good questions, and I'm so glad you asked them this morning. Because, first of all, I would say that apart from young children, which is, I think, a necessary qualification, because who by their very nature of their need to grow into more adult understandings of their conversion, and hence the need for parents and pastors, say for instance, to watch them, watch them grow, see if their confession of Christ is real and genuine. You know how that goes. You go in a room of four-year-olds or five-year-olds or seven-year-olds, and someone gives a gospel presentation, then he says, now I'd like to show, have you uh, show me by the show of hands, how many of you would like to love Jesus all your, with all your heart throughout all your life? Every hand goes up. Does that mean that everybody at that moment was seeing the reality of their being placed in the body of Christ? No, of course not. The issue is we need to watch them grow and develop. But what about an adult person? What about an adult person? A a person who delays or even refuses to be water baptized. What do we say about them? Well, I think what Paul would say and what the other apostles would say is that that's the very undermining of this particular salvation event that he's talking about here. And Paul's picturing of spirit baptism here with that water baptizing as its beautiful picture is absolutely destroyed. And then add this, do you realize the tremendous persecution of the first century church? You realize that people went down with their fellow believers to that river or that stream with the Romans watching and with Jews and their family members looking on. And if someone were to be baptized like a Jew in that water, symbolizing the very reality that they now are saying, my allegiance is to Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. I'm a part of the way like the book of Acts talks about, do you realize what might happen to that person? We don't understand that today. We we don't even conceive of it. Maybe they do sometimes in, in Europe and other places when, for instance, in Muslim countries, you give your allegiance to Jesus Christ and you're not only ostracized from your family, but in some cases you are hunted down and killed. And I've said this to you before. Do you realize that more people are being martyred for their faith in this our time than in any other time in the history of the church combined? Yes. Why? Because they say, I want to be obedient to Jesus Christ. I want to fulfill the Great Commission. I want to say to God that in addition to this wonderful confession of faith that I have in Jesus Christ, in my heart, even if nobody else knew it, 
I want to take that confession and I want to say to the world that I believe in Christ, regardless of the implications, regardless of the retribution. I want to be able to say that Christ is my Lord, and if I walk out of those waters of baptism, and if I walk onto that bank, and if I walk right into the arms of some Roman prisoner and they, a Roman soldier, and they take me away as a prisoner, so be it. Or if my family's going to ostracize me, I just believe that Jesus Himself, who said, you must hate your father and your mother and your sister and your brothers, and you must hate even your own life if you would be a follower of mine, so be it. So be it. You see, there was a price for their water baptism. We say today, well, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure it's important. I'm not so sure it's so vital. And yet, if you say that, you miss the very point of the ordinance. It's to declare your faith in Christ. Have you ever made a public declaration of your faith? Well, no. I don't like to get up in front of large crowds. I'm too nervous. Too nervous to, to confess Jesus Christ? You, you don't say Jesus Christ is your Lord? Uh, you don't come into the waters of baptism and say, this is the very picturing of my being immersed into the body of Christ? You don't say to yourself and to others, I want to declare to you that Jesus is my Lord and I want you to hold me accountable. And when you see sin in my life, I want you to tell me about it. I want you to say to me, that's not right. That's not honoring to God. Christ is your Lord. Why are you doing such things? If you say you continue in sin so that grace may abound, how can that be? Check out your union. Are you identified with Christ? Have you ever identified publicly with the church? You say, well, I go to church. I attend church. Have you been baptized as a public declaration? Have you followed the obedience of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20? Are you picturing the very reality here in Romans 6 that we were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism? It's not just a spiritual issue here. It's not just you saying, all of my Christian life is that which is in my heart. We, we, we like to say today, and so, pretty, so many people are fond of saying it, my religion is private. Oh, really? Say that to someone like one of the reformers or some martyr today who's dying at the stake, who's being killed by the sword, who's being shot in the head. Tell them that. Tell them that it's a private religion that you're living. They won't understand that at all. They'll say, I want to picture the very thing that Christ has done for me. I want to picture that when I go down into that water, that is a burial idea that says the old man has died. The old life of sin. It's died. It's there. It's buried. Never to be raised again. What's raised again? New life. New life in Christ. Dead to sin. Alive to Christ. Is that your life? Is that your profession? Is that what you confess? Oh, I fear, beloved, that we have come to a place in the 21st century, especially in the United States of America, where we are soft. Soft on sin. Soft on a public declaration. Soft on the New Testament theological reality that Jesus Christ, by His own death on Calvary, allowed me the inestimable privilege of being called a Christian and the inestimable privilege of telling every single person about it. Is that you? Jesus Christ was buried. Were you buried with Him into His death? Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. 
Do you have that assurance that one day you too will be raised from the dead and walk in newness, the newness of eternal life, which begins now based on your confession? Don't walk away from a text like this one without answering those questions. Your eternal destiny is dependent, hinges upon those answers. Like we talked about people delaying or even refusing water baptism. That glorious picturing of an inward reality. Don't you delay. Don't you refuse to acknowledge Christ as Lord. Jesus said, if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Do you want Jesus Christ as your advocate? Do you want Him to stand at the portals of heaven and say, He enters here because of my blood. He declared me before men. Father, I'm declaring Him before you. That's what it means, beloved, to live in light of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Let's bow together. Father, the spiritual reality here is so clear. Don't we know? Don't we realize that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? By baptism into His death, we were immersed. And as He was raised, we too shall be raised. If we are united with Him, we have a vital union with Christ. We shall see our lives as lived out publicly, declaratively, unashamed, unabashed, saying to Christ and saying to all who look at my life, He's Christ's. He's not His own. He's been bought with a price. Oh, Father, how many here, even in this church, church that has stood for 54 years for the truth of the Gospel, proclaiming the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, how many even in our own fellowship have not been spiritually immersed And its evidence is in their unwillingness to declare through baptism that Jesus Christ is my Lord. Father, shake us. Shake us from self-confidence. From hidden sin. From the control of Satan. To the power of God. Allow us to be gripped Not by sin, but gripped by grace. Shake us from our complacency, Father. Allow us to be bold for Christ. Lord, what would we be? What would we do? How would we respond if any one of us, myself included, were to have gone at my baptism from those very waters into the face of great persecution, judgment, and possibly even death at the hands of human beings. Would I say it's worth it? Would I be picturing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, knowing that it's a, it's a fact 
It's established. And whatever men could do to me by the sword, they cannot do anything to my soul. Oh, Father, give us Christ. Allow us to be seeing this promise of grace. And we'll thank You. In His name, Amen.